0: I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. My guest this week comes from the music hotbed that was Minneapolis. His new solo record, Jump for Joy, comes out in June. Gary Loris joins me this week to discuss three decades with the Jayhawks, working with legendary producers like Bob Ezrin, Rick Rubin, George Draculius, Brendan O'Brien, and also with artists such as Ray Davies and Peter Buck we discuss the difference in balancing the inspirational and the craft of songwriting. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Gary Loris. It's Nick and the Radical Podcast is now powered in part by Playboy Condoms. At Playboy, they are committed to products that make sexual intimacy safe playful and fun for all that's why they have introduced playboy condoms designed for maximum pleasure and safety with unique quality and scent features that exceed international quality standards now available at walmart or walmart.com respect your partners hey gary thank you for joining the show i'm really happy to have this discussion with you My pleasure. Welcome. It's been uh, quite a year. At least it seems you've been uh, delved uh, deep into your creativity during it. Um, Are you still based? You're based in Minneapolis
1: still? Based in Minneapolis, but living in Canada right now. Are you really? Yes. I met and fell in love with a beautiful Canadian woman and um, relocated here, at least for the time being. I think we will see where we'll end up, but uh, now is not the time to be... Buying a house uh, on either side of the border. So uh, we're up here in Canada for now, and uh, it's interesting. Congratulations. Yeah, thank
0: you. Very happy. That's exciting. So you have a new record coming out, I believe, on June 4th. It's called Jump for Joy. It's a solo record. Um, And I've heard the one track, the single. Uh, It's fantastic. Almost Home. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, and tell me a little bit about this. I mean, it seems you've been productive because the Jayhawks just put a, didn't you put out a new record last year?
1: Uh, it's, Yeah, it was last year. Well, it came out in 2000, late. When was it to come out? Jeez, I got to think about this. Yeah, last year. But uh, yeah, we had the last live show we did was March uh, 8th in Northampton, Massachusetts. We played the 6th and 7th of March in Brooklyn, and it was right when COVID was starting to hit and people were really, the first time we got the elbow bumps and <clears throat> people being a little wary about being close. It's just the very beginning. Um, but we put a record out um, called XOXO. Obviously, we didn't tour it, um, but we put one out. Um, that's it. We put it out in the summer of last year but uh recorded it the year before now this record jump for joy has been done for a couple years it has been um yeah it was ready to go and then it was just discussed that maybe it's better you know not to confuse the situation or you know the business there's you know you got to take in consideration um press and all the, you know and 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 uh so I don't quite understand it all, after all these years, but I said, okay, fine. I waited this long. I'll wait some more. So I did not make this record during COVID. This is a, um, a couple of years before that, and uh, wow. but I haven't really listened to it much. And now I'm I'm excited to have it come out now because because there isn't anything else coming out for the J-OX right this moment, and it gives me some focus um, and something new to to promote. Is this like your second solo album you've done? Uh, Embarrassingly so. Only my second. And I'm hoping to glut the airwaves and the uh, music business with solo material from now on because I can. I did this record, Jump for Joy, and there's the cover back there, um, all by myself in a little 11 by 14 room. um, Which is very different than the Vagabond's record, the record I put out in 2008. Which was an ensemble cast, you know, with a uh, a bunch of people in a nice LA studio and a producer, <clears throat> which I love. But I'm also really intrigued with this the 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 mad scientist in me, just kind of tinkering in my room, left to my own devices, and uh, so that's what this record is. It's just me. So it's a hundred percent you. It's all me. There's uh there's I'm uh, playing guitars, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, ba- virtual bass, usually virtual drums, um synths and some keys and strings and um uh of course vocals and uh all done pretty much you know on headphones in a little room. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: That's a great experiment, man.
1: Well, this is something I can continue to do because I like to tinker and I like to you know, I'm I'm not a luddite. I do understand some of the tech stuff, not not to a nth degree, but I know how to get my make my way around um, some different software programs and recording, and it's fun. I, I fancy myself a bit of a producer, and so it's a good exercise in that. And it's you know it's just the way it is. Again, the music business people don't buy records, meaning. Um, musicians like me who are not uh, struggling necessarily but not uh, uh, Taylor Swift or whoever um, they can't can't really afford to go to expensive studios anymore and hire a big producer and hire people it's kind of a a necessary evil that you learn how to do things yourself which is great but it's also sad because you cut a lot of other people out of the business just like people say well i get my music for free now but you know they don't realize how much they're missing because you get what you pay for and um there's a lot of musicians who otherwise would be making music but but have been squeezed out and so there's a lot a lot of lost art i think that's happened
0: yeah let alone down the chain right when you think of down the chain recording engineers people that worked at studios
1: right you know Exactly.
0: Down the chain. Um, and so, I mean, with the Jayhawks, I mean, that's been a 30 year. How long have you guys been together? 30 some odd?
1: Uh, we got together 30 odd some year. Well, <clears throat> let me do the math. It's more than that. Um, I have a little trouble with my brain's a little slow to 35 years. 1985. February of 1985 is when we first got together <clears throat> and rehearsed. And so, is that 35 years ago? Yeah. Wow. And 80s band.
0: Did my friend George Draculius, is that who signed you? You were signed to American initially. You had a, what what'd you have, an independent record, then signed to American? We
1: did our own record on Bunkhouse called, creatively enough, The Jayhawks. Um, We were, uh, we had a lot of label interest right away. Like We just kind of hit the ground running. And and we had to make a lot of demos, for labels like Atlantic, I remember, or A and M, um, and a label called IRS back at the time. And 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 what they do is they give us a little money and make. They say we, you know, I love this, but I don't know what to call it. And my boss doesn't, you know, isn't quite sold. We we were the king of having big fans in the in the. Um, in the music business and the labels just a little below the decision-making level. So like we love you and I, I think let, let's just make a couple more demos and and that led and of course then people just didn't know what to do with it. Um to us assembling our second record on a local legendary Minneapolis label called Twin Town. Twin Tone. Sorry, there's a guitar store called Twin Town. Twin Tone Records where you know Bands like the replacements put stuff out early. Um and, and a bunch of great music. Um so we uh eventually a guy named Dave Ayers there, at Twin Tone, um who worked at AM, I maybe you know Dave. I do know Dave. He stars on publishing Dave. Yep. Um he was the head of the maybe he was A and R guy or I don't remember what he was, VP. There weren't that many people who worked there. <clears throat> You know, he, he got us, um, we did a deal there where we just took all our demos that we had made for all these major labels and overdubbed them and put out a record called Blue Earth. <clears throat> and one day in 1990, I think it was, uh, that, that was probably 88 we put out uh, Blue Earth, maybe something like that. 1990 or so, um, Dave was good friends with George Terculius George was... Rick Rubin's right-hand man at, at what was then called Deaf American. And um, Dave Dave Ayers and George had worked together, I believe, at A and M at some point. So they stayed friendly and stayed in touch. And Dave and George were talking on the phone one day, and uh, Dave was in the office in Twin Town, and he was playing Blue Earth in the background, and George heard it. He said, "Who are those guys?" "I'm flying in tomorrow." So we, like, after being together five years or so, we had an overnight success there. George flew in, hung out, went to see us play this New Year's Eve show at the Hyatt Regency in Minneapolis, signed us, and uh, that was that. I think he saw us as kind of—and Rick, maybe, Ruben—as kind of the the birds, where— and at the time that they had the kind of, or the black crows and they were kind of the stones so like kind of getting that kind of thing, the stones and the birds and, and that kind of thing. So that was maybe part of the mindset.
0: Mm. Tell me about, uh, you know, I've had Bob mold on here and we talked in the fall, um, talk about Minneapolis back then. And like, like as a creative hub, I mean, just the amount of talent there and, great music and great bands coming. Tell me a little bit about that community.
1: Well, you know, I've had this discussion before, like, why aren't so many great bands come from Minneapolis and not so many from Pittsburgh or, you know, Cincinnati or somewhere? Not to pick on them. But at one point in the early days, it was explained to me that for a burgeoning music scene to happen, you needed like three or four things. One was a really cool club. You had to have... Um, maybe a cool up-and-coming rec- record store kind of hub kind of thing, and um, and uh, maybe a, look, a label, and uh, I don't know, maybe it was a radio station. I don't remember what it was. <clears throat> but we had First Avenue, which was the house the Prince built, um, and First Aven- Avenue, 7th Street Entry. So it had this cool thing, a, a club there. And then with a, with a guy named Steve McClellan, who was kind of the Jack Nicholson of, of rock. And he was really uh, helped bands a lot along with that whole staff. Then there was Orfolk, we call it Orfolk, but it was Orfolk Jokopus or Orfolk Jokopus, depending how you want to say it, which was an amazing record store named after the owner's two favorite records, which was Or by Skip Spence of the famous Moby Grape. One of my favorites, and another one of my favorites, <clears throat> and I don't know if it's folk joke opus or folk joke folk joke and that's a record by the incredible Roy Harper, who is a you know f- a master you know British folk dude, and ironically one of my son's favorites. <clears throat> so that was there, and that served as kind of the clubhouse. Bands would come, their would hang out there. We would be there. Other bands, um, you would kind of go in there. Um and you'd see Peter Jesperson who was part of um he was the Svengali, kind of the taste maker. He'd spin records and you'd go to Peter, like, What is that? Oh, that's the new Big Star record or um, uh, Who's Big Star? And he'd teach you about that or, you know, go in there to get the new clash single or whatever. Um, so it was kind of like this cool record store hang and uh, then there was Twin Tone, which was a, a label and so, anyway, there was a lot going on, but the main thing about Minneapolis that differed, I thought, from a lot of other scenes, because there was always the scene. there was a scene and then a number of years later there'd be another scene it was, you know, it was Boston for a while, right? It was the hot spot. It was Minneapolis, it was, and it was Seattle, and it was Austin or whatever, you know, a certain funny enough, Chicago never was, even though it had a lot of great music, but I think I think even at some point Omaha became kind of a hot spot. Um so uh but the thing I thought that differentiated Minneapolis from other scenes or hotspots or towns was the diversity because we had like the best of I and mean, like uh, the best kind of punk rock bands like uh Husker Du and we had the replacements, you know, those kind of bands that were kind of the best of that genre. And we had Us, which I'd like to think were one of the better, what would be considered Roots Rock for, I hate any of the terms, but that kind of stuff. But then they had and all these different rock bands. Oh, so many. And then they had The Prince and The Time and that whole scene. All that was happening at the same time and kind of feeding off each other. Even though they were kind of separate, but the town was kind of on fire.
0: There are a lot of recording studios back then or not not so many.
1: Yeah, there were. There were enough. I mean, I wasn't LA. Um but yeah, there were there were there were some nice places and, and early on. I don't remember when they when Prince built Paisley Park, but there was that too. But there there are a lot of cool studios, not necessarily as good as what you'd get out in LA. Right.
0: Yeah, well, it's a fascinating city, I think, with its history,
1: so. It is. It is. It still has a lot of stuff, but I, although I don't really know what goes on. I will tell you this about Minneapolis. they, If they loved a band, they embraced it. And they'd embrace it before a lot of other towns. You found a lot of um, bands up and coming, or even who came, um, coming back to Minneapolis and playing it a lot. Like uh, Wilco and Sunvolt, and all those bands... Um, they first caught on, I think, in Minneapolis, and they knew it. So um, very much a music uh, crazy town. That's fantastic. I
0: mean, were you there during much of last year, though, with all the kind of... I was. ...everything going on in the world? What was yeah. it like to be there in the middle of last year?
1: Well, it's weird because I had been away for a couple of years, and I moved back to Minneapolis the day... That that happened, or was it the day after? I don't remember. But the riots were going on. George Floyd, of course, had been killed. Probably the night day before, or was it that day? I think it was the day before. So I drove into town, and everybody's like, "You're going to Minneapolis." And I remember getting to the Airbnb. My son was with me. We were going, and I was moving back to this place, waiting to get in, and just hearing all the helicopters and the sirens, and you could hear chant, you know, marching and Um, it was scary because when I first moved to Minneapolis, it was white bread, man, in 73, it was very monochrome, you know, uh, everybody was blonde and white, nobody locked their doors and it was just very Scandinavian and, um, and it just evolved into a more diverse city, but, um with a lot of problems. And when I first started touring, or when we first started touring, the Jayhawks, you go to Europe or something, people go, oh, you're from Minneapolis, uh, home of Prince. You know, um, then years later, it was, you're from Minneapolis, uh, the home of the Mall of America. And now, you go somewhere, you're from Minneapolis. Oh my God, George Floyd. Um, Yeah, so it's, its profile has changed quite a bit. And, you know, for better and for worse, you know, obviously horrible things have happened, um, but obviously these things have been under the surface for, beneath the surface for quite a while and need to be dealt with, but very sad. Yeah, it is, Bob.
0: Uh, the education of it, though, for a lot of people's valuable and, I mean, it just... It, it is. is.
1: And being in Canada and watching it through the eyes of Canadians, my wife, and just not understanding... The violence and the guns, the guns, guns, yeah, they guns. They can't comprehend that, right? The whole the gun they thing. They don't understand. They just don't. Uh, when you think of moving there, she's afraid of the gun violence, and I don't blame her. But, um, yeah, it's not quite the same up here.
0: Crazy. Well, back to creativity and uh, being a musician. I'm curious, you know, as you've gone through, I mean, age gives us a different kind of EQ, I call it, right, which is the emotional quotient. Um, Uh And as you dealt with the Jayhawks and like the many iterations, like how has that um, propelled you? I mean, has it been frustrating? Has it been great because you become this new thing? You evolve as you go. Um, How has that worked in your position with the band?
1: It has evolved from um, the early days in the band when I was a little bit more of a supporting character to when we got into the Hollywood Town Hall, tomorrow, the Greengrass records, where I became an equal with Olson, and we kind of had the Lennon-McCartney thing where we kind of fighting for our songs space to the point where all of a sudden he left and there was that great fear and yet freedom and exhilaration because you're like, you can do anything. You know, and it's not—it's not, it's not a—it's we—we can now do what we want um, and explore some areas that no, normally couldn't. So that was a very exciting time. Also, a time, sound alive's period, where thought we were making our last record. You know, well, we'll do one more. Probably nobody's gonna like this, and label was questioning it. Um, and that taught me something: to just do what you want to do with the idea that it's like your last record, instead of worrying how much it's going to sell. Um, so that was exhilarating. As far as changes in the band, um, it's been a pretty pretty steady crew. I mean, there's been some changes. I think it helps that, you know, Mark Perlman has been there, our bass player, since day one. And he's a very important part of the band. Um, there's no real role players in the band there's just kind of um so you know and our keyboard player karen came and went and then she came back because after she had raised her child um, tim our drummer has been there since 95 and probably the drummer we always had wanted from day one but um, and there's been some other thing people come and go as fifth members but the core of mark perlman tim O'Regan, Myself and Karen, it's been pretty steady throughout the years. Um, your question was really about how the shifting lineups, how it's affected creativity? Yeah. And a, yeah or just but aging? as you
0: age, I mean, you know, look, our emotional cue goes up, right? We can deal with things differently than throwing things, which we might have done in our 20s. <laughs> I'm just I'm wondering. throw a <laughs> golf club. <man. laughs>
1: I throw a golf club now. Oh, there, well, I
0: don't blame you. I I throw, I could always throw a golf club.
1: So.
0: <laughs> um, but I'm just curious if it changed the whole creative experience for you guys, because then, you know, maybe some of that tension's relieved and just puts you in a different space creatively.
1: Well, I don't know. Some I definitely uh, have changed over the years, um, not necessarily because of, band dynamics although the last JLX record was one where i thought okay you guys what do you got you know let's let me not steer the ship so much and let's open the door a bit more and see what if uh if you guys want to take a little bit more control of the record see how it goes and uh, uh that was a good experience i don't know if it's uh I joke that I have painted myself into a corner now because now what do I do? Next record? Eh, my turn again. You had your chance? No. But um, but I think it was healthy for the band and it made a good record. But uh, emotional quote uh, quotient, um I don't remember how I dealt with uh, songwriting and, and making records so much back in the day. I know that it becomes harder as you get older. How's, how's because that? Because you... Um, I don't know why. Well, for one thing, maybe you start getting up to a certain point. And you're like, okay, well, I'm more accepting. This is my life. This is good. Instead of like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get ahead. I got maybe. Uh, although I think the, the, I always say the lack of success for our band has probably made us a better band, more successful, longer. Because we always feel like we have something to prove. You know, we still haven't reached where we had wanted to get. But I don't know. I mean, tell me tell me one. Let me think of one. Maybe there's a few uh, in the rock world who have done their best work after the age of 35, 40. I mean, you could say Dylan had that comeback and made some cool records. And yeah, you can get into... Some eclectic old, you know, um, Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits yeah, or something. Sometimes but the Stones surprise dude. you once in a while, right? I mean, so not maybe a, a complete
0: work, but, you know, some of the
1: songs. Yeah. But mostly, no. Not, you know, maybe if you're a jazz musician, a blues guy, classical. Um, but not very many. I can think of which and why is that? I don't know. I don't know if it's your drive goes down or you feel like I've already dialed it. You start feeling like you're repeating yourself. You start thinking about um, trying to do a song like how did you start thinking about your process? Like how did I write that song back then? How you know? Or boy, I've already done this and like. Well, it's a pirate ship, right, when you're younger,
0: too? It's like us against the world, we're outlaws. You know, you're not going to maintain that at 50, you know what I mean? Um,
1: No, no, definitely not. And yet, uh, I think because we're not a true rock band, I've never called ourselves a real rock and roll band. Rock and roll band is like the Black Crows or something like that. That's, you know, swag or Black Crows rock. Um, I think we've just kind of the... An oddball, so I feel like i you know so I still feel like what we do is is really good is it is is it are we at our peak i don't think so, maybe not, maybe we'll surprise ourselves, but um that it's hard to maintain that over the years in any kind of creative field, I think, but especially rock, which has really always been termed a young person's game, you know right, and i mean you you
0: are a producer too, and um Aside from aside from a songwriter, performer, um, you've had some mm-hmm. interesting collaborations. Though you know you've got to work with some real giants. In my mind, you know whether it was having George and Rick around at the beginning, or Bob Ezrin did a record with you. You did a record with Peter Buck, right?
1: Mm-hmm. What did
0: you take away from any of those? I mean, as far as maybe as a producer, um, maybe as an artist.
1: Oh yeah, oh, I certainly have. <laughs> I certainly have. As a mu- as a musician and as a producer, I certainly when I produce things myself, I hear myself tapping into stuff that that other producers I worked with that I respect um, have said to me or said to us. George Draculus, I love George. George and I are still good friends. I like to think think so. We stay in touch. And George had a very George. If you know George, yes. He's uh very endearing and he has but he has kind of a he doesn't always want to give he's not the kind of guy who would give you um just nice encouragement. That was great.
0: He's not coaching the little league team now. <laughs> no.
1: One of his big lines and I've used it before is don't embarrass me. You know, like you're getting ready to hit a play a solo. He goes, "Gary, don't embarrass me." <laughs> um, a lot of those kind of things, uh, a lot of little sayings he would do have, and and uh, uh, his attitude. Uh, Bob Ezrin was very much about um, being irreverent. I remember him telling me, "Gary, you don't owe your audience anything." Cause I'm like, because we were making a big splashy pop record with Smile. And we, I knew it was going to alienate some people because we'd come up the ranks as a kind of a rootsy band, and he's like, "Don't worry about him. Don't worry about him." Uh, he is also the, the guy who really kind of called me on some of my songwriting once in a in a way that I I I have taken to heart. And uh, do you do that privately, uh, he, or do you do that
0: in front of your bandmates?
1: Oh, uh, that wasn't. I think it was probably privately. And I'm still friend with, friends with Bob. I mean, Bob and I stay in touch, and he's a, a fantastic person. Um, he said, Gary, you're an inspired songwriter. He said this during the smile. And I'm like, thanks, Bob. He goes, I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. He said, You are good at in, write, being, writing the inspired, getting the inspired idea of a song, but you're not as good at the crafting he said you need to work on the crafting the uh, the rolling up your sleeves and and fine tuning and rewriting the lyrics and honing it and that's very true of me it still is to this day even if i try to do a um i've done a little bit of a few workshops music uh, writing and i've always said there are two basic sides to songwriting other than Producing and just the writing itself, inspired and crafting, which is the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And I am definitely better at the unconscious stream of consciousness kind of thing, and that's why I have so many song ideas, but not as many that are finished. Uh, So he called me on that. Uh, You know, I worked with Brian Paulson, who I loved. He did uh, Santa Lies record, uh, Rick Rubin. Um, Rick Rubin at one time said Gary, stop trying to be so arty He <laughs> <laughs> said that Stop trying to be so arty Because we'd sit on his couch And listening to all my song ideas For uh, I think this was for a song, An album called Radio Day Music And he was the executive producer And he uh, you know, He would just uh, Call me on it sometimes I, I don't care i i i like to be arty um maybe more than he wants but i remember that and uh, you know working with jim scott who's a fantastic producer engineered but basically produced a lot of those petty records and the chili peppers records and um who else i don't remember tons of people
0: what was the peter buck experience i mean you you kind of went where he was and recorded like in residence somehow? Or how did you do that?
1: No, we went to, well, kind of. We went to Portland to record where he was living. And he just at one time said, I want to produce the band uh, whenever you want. No no charge kind of thing. Um, I just want to work. And I like you guys. So he came to Minneapolis and did pre-production. But basically we went to Portland because that was not only... Peter, but it was really a team effort. There's a guy named Tucker Martin who's produced a lot of great stuff, and he has a a great studio in portland and really kind of Peter was kind of like the executive producer kind of sit back and get the overall thing and Tucker was very much hands on um kind of guy, so but we had to work with people you know like Brendan O'Brien before he became huge. He was the engineer on some of our stuff with George. Um, And I don't know who I'm forgetting, but yeah, I've been lucky enough to be around and and going to really great um, studios, Ocean Way, and Sound City, Sound (laughs) Shitty, Sound Factory, um, you know, I can't think of all the places we did it. Did you guys do
0: anything at A&M or ever?
1: I did. I I sang some backup at A&M. Yeah, that's great. The old Charlie Chaplin um, studios and Capitol. And and then just my experience that I had, uh, we had, the band had with Ray Davies of the Kinks, where we ended up being in Abbey Road and we had spent a lot of time at Conk Studios in... uh, in North London with him. How
0: did that and come together? Is he a fan of yours? Like you guys kind of backed him on his couple of his records, or how did that? Come we together?
1: backed him on his last two records. Uh, uh, it was really through an A and R guy, a friend John Jackson at Sony Legacy, who also plays with us um, occasionally when he can, uh, when we can, uh, was running that project, and he knew that Ray was doing a project called Americana. And he was really into um, kind of a, a retrospective and his connection with America. And he wanted a kind of an American band, and he really wanted a band. He didn't want to have a bunch of session players. He wanted a band. So uh, we were over in Spain playing, and, uh, and our A&R guy, John, said, do you want to stop? start going home? Will you go to London and have a little audition with Ray? And Ray had auditioned other people over time, and it hadn't... Worked, but we all clicked and we ended up going back two or three more times and did uh two records with him. But I was, I brought it up was you're asking about my experiences with producers and 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 uh, Ray is a very underappreciated music producer because if you think about it, like the Beatles had George Martin and uh Stones had uh Glenn Johns or whoever Jimmy, uh, what was his name. I forget. A lot of famous bands had their their guys, and um, the Kinks pretty much Ray produced it, other than the very early stuff. And he was really good at. It. Just like Jimmy Page was a great producer. Led Zeppelin never had a George Martin; they had Jimmy Page. So, uh, anyway, hmm. rambling. No, fantastic.
0: I mean, it's just such a collection of people you've collaborated with. I think it's really impressive. So.
1: Yeah, I know. I was just thinking about all the backup singing we did, you know, there was a time where we were doing, you know, like the Counting Crows, and the Black Crows, and the Wallflowers, and John Hyatt, and all this stuff, and um, Maria McKee. Um, yeah, there was a lot going on. The glorious the, 90s. Was, the 90s, yeah, I know.
0: So amazing. Well, I'm excited for the solo record. Um, the positivity in it's going to be something we all need. So your timing's really good, judging just from the title and listening to almost home. Well, so.
1: jump for joy is a little bit double. Okay, <laughs>
0: I was trying to look for something to get us out of this.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a little bit <laughs> not quite. It's not, you know, I'm never going to be the party album guy. <laughs> I'm never going to be the. That's what I was explaining to my wife. I mean, like reggae. Depresses me. I don't know why. You know, certain, or happy music. Not that all reggae is happy, but, you know, um, it's great, but it's, I, I'm just never, I'm always going to be drawn to a, little, a darker side. But your, your,
0: your sound, your music sounds, you know, it definitely has the pop elements to it.
1: I mean, what you write, you're very poppy. I. But the lyrics are tend to be a little bit, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know... It, I do write real poppy stuff, but um, when I I was approached by through my publisher through Nick to, by Nickelodeon to write a a kids song for an app, and uh, just to skip ahead to the end of the story, they didn't use it. Um, they should have because it's great, and I'm putting I'm going to make a kids record now oh, because of there it. There you I'm go. Like, I love I love this. You can just do something really simple, and it's like writing a those Beatles songs when they were just into that. Just simple. Um, Get to the point. There's no such thing as a slow build in a kid's song. Um, But they had a little directive of what they were looking for. And the woman from Nickelodeon, was very nice, got on the phone and she said, you know, we're aware of your Jayhawk stuff and you're really, quote-unquote, excited. But... um, you might basically the line was you might want to dial down the melancholy and you know that it can kind of have kind of a sadness to to what i do so and and even when they passed on it uh, i was talking to my manager about it. he said you know next time you might want to just get somebody else to sing it because your voice just sounds kind of sad and that's just <laughs> that's just who i am you know um, although ironically, I'm not that sad. I
0: was say, you don't seem sad to me at all. So I hope this podcast doesn't come off as two sad guys together. So
1: no, no, party, we're <laughs> party, party, guys. party on, wing guys. Yeah. So is this uh, podcast also going to be video? There what is mean, video you know, here. Is I don't
0: it? put the video up um,
1: yet. Oh, I was just going to say, I post my picture back here. I like that. It's my son's. Uh, oh, is it really? Is it? I'm gonna yeah he, how old is he? It's uh, just a sketch he had. He's two. No, I'm kidding. He's uh he's twenty two. Oh that's fantastic. So this is some of the little sketchy he had. Um he's twenty-two. In fact, he's turned twenty-two yesterday and he's graduating from Boston University. Oh fantastic. Next week. Yeah. Congrats so. on that. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you for doing this. The album is Jump for Joy. June 4th. June 4th on 30 Tigers, and I'm going to plug my Patreon.com slash Gary Loris. Cool. I do that. I have that. Uh, You can subscribe for as little as $5. Uh, You get a lot of content. Uh, I I will do an occasional Facebook Live, usually once a month um, of a bit of a show. Otherwise... Nice.
0: Well, I can't wait to see you live. That'll be the most exciting part.
1: Me either. We are scheduled. The first live show we have scheduled since March 8th of last year is in Spain. We're supposed to go to Spain in the middle of July or early July. We'll see if that happens or not. But. Excellent. That's yep. what we need to see.
0: We'll stay healthy, my friend. All right. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That's our show this week. We thank our sponsor, Playboy Condoms, for supporting these episodes. To follow what's happening with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. You'll find past episodes, show notes, and even merchandise such as T-shirts and hats. Also, I encourage you to follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, please follow us on social media, The Radical Pod, where we reveal more about upcoming guests. Thanks for listening and spreading the word.